We are in uh, uh, Luke chapter 23, and as you may have picked up also from some of the songs that we sang, that our focus this morning is, were you there? Now, that song that we sang, Were You There?, we, we sing that on Good Friday, don't we? That's a Good Friday song. In fact, we leave off the last chorus. We leave off that last verse about, about were you there when he, when he rose up from the dead because, well, it's Good Friday. It's about the death, and, and the, the resurrection, resurrection Sunday is, is coming, but we're not there yet. And yet, when Luke is telling this story about the crucifixion of Jesus, he is writing it down many years after Decades after, when many of those who will read it, like you and I today, we know the end of the story. We know what's going to happen, so we can read it with that in in mind also. We can be aware that that's going to be part of it. And yet, the focus in this section is on the crucifixion, on Jesus' death for us. I delivered to you, Paul writes, of first importance what I also received— That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried. And that's the part that we're going to consider today. I want us to, to, as we read through this story, I want us to, to imagine ourselves there. Imagine ourselves as part of the experience. You see, because Luke does a surprising thing. Luke focuses not so much on Jesus' experience on the cross. He gives very few details about that. He doesn't unpack all that happens to Jesus there. Um, We get that from the other Gospels. Luke doesn't focus there. He says, and they crucified him. And it's pretty brief. But what Luke focuses a lot on, what Luke unpacks for us, is the different kinds of people who are there. And in these people, do we see something of ourselves? You probably should. And in fact, I would go so far as to say at some level, I hope that you do. That we should see ourselves in those who were there. But also we're going to see people around us. Maybe those who oppose you, mock you, ridicule you because of your faith in Jesus. Maybe, maybe you'll see them represented there. Were you there when they crucified our Lord? So let's think about the scene. Let's think about the, the people that we see as we read through. And I want to read through the, the uh, last half of the chapter, Luke chapter 23. We're going to we'll be on page 884 if you're using the church Bible in the seat pocket in front of you. But let's stand together as we read this section of God's Word. This is a very, it's a serious section. Beginning at verse 26. And they led him away, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the woman, women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. 
Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ, his, uh, Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, but, now there's a contrast. There's a change in how people respond. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit or entrust my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent or righteous. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances. And the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. But there's one more. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to the decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid when they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. Father, would you open your word to us? Lord, in this very solemn and serious passage, Lord, help us to see what goes on here. Lord, help us to see ourselves there before the cross of the Christ, the chosen one of God, the King, our Savior. Father, show us your heart toward those who believe in you. Toward, show us, Father, your heart even to those who would yet mock and ridicule and scorn. 
Lord, show us yourself as we look into your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your seats. As I've been considering the passage, I, 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 you may see in, in your notes, in the handout notes, in the bulletin, there's several sections that I, I, I break the passage into. There's, first of all, there's a shameful procession. There is a description of judgment, a judgment hanging overhead that goes beyond the present scene. There are those who are gathered around the cross. There's the religious. There's the secularist. There's the lawless. We see these in the rulers of the council. You see those, the, 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 the secularists, those who trust in the world, government and institutions, the soldiers just doing their job. There are the lawless criminals who have done what they wanted to serve themselves despite how it harmed others, and now they receive their recompense. They mock, they ridicule, they rage against the king, and then finally we, we see something about a response. A response to what Jesus is doing. A response that he has shown us the way toward. So, let's go back to that shameful procession. Where, in verse 26, they led him away and they seized Simon. So we're leaving the praetorium. It's not very far from what was Herod the Great's former palace on the west side of the city, up on the western hill, to go from there. In fact, if you were to walk it today with all the buildings and such that are in place today, you could make the walk in a, easily seven minutes. So this kind of procession, but with one who is, is stumbling and fallen, who has been so weak and who's bearing the cross to the point that now he can no longer carry it and someone else must carry it, it's going to take longer than that, certainly. But it's not a, a long way. And they, they, they go outside the city and outside the walls at that time, although even within 10, or 10 years or so from the time of the crucifixion, that part of the city would then be included within the city walls. But Jesus suffers as the scripture says, outside the gates. And it's, that's, that location is actually inside. If you were to travel with, with us to Jerusalem in Israel, then you would see that site today is actually located within the current city walls as well, but not the case in the first century. In the first century, this would have been on a hill overlooking or very visible from the main road to either go south out of the city down toward Bethlehem, Hebron, and further south, or to, to go west from Jerusalem out to the coast, out to perhaps the port of Jaffa. And so a lot of traffic on this road. The cross is not right upon the road, but a little bit back from that road, up on the hillside, visible to all. So you have this procession. Uh, Jesus has been given, uh, remember on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear to him, and they speak to him about his coming exodus, his coming exit. He will have a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and then there will be another parade in the same week, and that will be a shameful exit. The first time when Jesus enters the city, they're laying down the carpet of, of palm fronds and even their, their own tunics to cover the dusty road. And here, they drag him along, force him to go amidst the wailing and lamentations and beating of breasts. 
Before, as he enters the city, they, they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, which means save us now, deliver us now. And then in the exit and on the cross, they're going to say, save yourself if you can. So there's quite a contrast in what happened earlier in the week as to what happens now. And there's observers along the way, and some of those observers get pulled into the procession, like Simon, who when the victim is no longer able to carry the crossbar himself, that Simon is pressed into service, and Simon will be the first one to experience something of what it is to take up a cross and follow Jesus. Something that Luke told us, that those who would be his disciples are going to, at times, need to do. And that's going to be a normal that we wouldn't choose if we had our druthers. So Simon moves from bystander to participant. And a strange thing happens. In the midst of this procession, what's focused on the most is the words of Jesus to these daughters of Jerusalem. These are not the, the same women who had followed him from Galilee, who will be looking to where he is buried, who will be bringing the spices and ointments to anoint his body on the, early on the first day of the week in the upcoming chapter. No, these are just women of Jerusalem who see something terrible happening to a son of Israel, and so they're mourning and lamenting this. This is a terrible thing. It is a terrible thing, and a terrible day. And yet Jesus' words to them surprise us. These words that Jesus speaks to them, in fact, are the longest statement that Luke records of Jesus around the trials or crucifixions. Ever since he's been arrested, this seems to be the longest discussion that at least Luke records of what he says. We don't know that that's the case, but Luke wants to emphasize this. That's all that I'm saying. This longest statement to these daughters of Jerusalem in verse 28, he tells them, do not, daughters of Jerusalem, he identifies them, he says, do not weep for me, in contrast, weep, but for yourselves, daughters of Jerusalem. You see, there's even a structure to it, that there's a point here that Jesus is telling them, don't weep for me, don't lament for me, lament for yourselves. Because what they are doing here, thinking that they will resolve their problems by getting rid of me, they're only bringing the judgment of God upon themselves and upon you, who are here with them. This is more than just about Jesus he, he, he talks about that if they will do this, he said, a days are coming. What do I mean? Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. Why? Because days are coming that are going to be terrible days. Days are coming that are going to be so bad that they are going to say it's going to be a, a proverb of the hour. Blessed are those who are barren. Now, that's a shocking statement to an Israelite woman. Blessed are those who are barren. Blessed are those who have never born children, who do not have children in this particular hour because it's going to be so bad, it's going to be so terrible, it's going to be so torturous that you would not want to have little children going through it with you. You would rather, as Job says, that they'd never been born. It's going to be that bad. And what, what Jesus is initially bringing up again is what he had already spoken about concerning in the future when the Romans are going to surround Jerusalem and they're going to destroy the city. 
And within 40 years, not one Jewish person will be left. And those that, that are trapped within the city during that siege and are slowly starving to death, they're going to wish that they could have a way of escape, but there is none. They're going to wish that they, that they could have death come quickly upon them, and yet it will not. They're going to hide within the sewers and cisterns within the city only to be discovered by the Romans and murdered there. It's going to be a terrible time that is coming upon them as if they would say that, that let the mountains fall on us, the hills cover us. There, if we could have a quicker end or if we could have some place to hide and yet neither will be given them. And that was fulfilled very literally, very dramatically in 70 AD. But that portends a future event that's coming as well, and that's the Great Tribulation. As terrible as 70 AD was in Jerusalem, it was localized in context. And yet there's a Great Tribulation that we read about as we were studying last year through the book of the Revelation that is going to be much worse over all the earth. And the same kinds of things, only on a far greater and terrible scale. In fact, that time of trouble or tribulation will be so great as never has been upon the world or will be. So think of the worst incidents in history that you can think of. It's going to be worse than that. Worse than that. And that is coming. And if I could ramp it up a little bit higher, imagine, if you will, what it is to be completely separated from God forever. Now you say, well, I know some people that are happy to live life as if God did not exist at all. They live life completely with God completely irrelevant to them. And yet they still get the fringe benefits of the common grace of God upon humanity. The rain, here it is today, falls on the just and the unjust, does it not? We all partake of God's goodness whether we realize it and acknowledge it or not. And imagine what it is to be completely separated from all of God's goodness and mercy. That day is coming upon all of those who have received God's offer of salvation in his son, Jesus. He says, Jesus says to these, these, these words, if they do, in verse 31, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? That's really not that difficult of a statement. If they will do this in the daylight when the light of the world is here, imagine what they'll do when, when night comes when no man can work. If they, will, if they will do this, if they will do this in this kind of time, what is it going to look like in the future? If they would do this to the just one, what will they do to those who are guilty? You see, Jesus is the green. Jesus is the, is the one who has life in him. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. We, apart from him, had no life. We were the dead. We were the dry. When you want to build a fire, what wood do you use? Green wood or dry wood? What do you use? Anybody know? Anybody? Burning wood? Oh, you heard about there's a burn ban. Okay. Well... If you were to burn wood, if you were to have a campfire, you would hope for dry wood because dry wood burns easily and hot. Green wood, it's hard to get the fire started. And yet they will do this with the green. How much more? If God's wrath would fall upon his son Jesus, the innocent one, how much more is God's wrath sure to fall upon those who are guilty and rebellious 
and sinful. As Peter says in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he says, If judgment begins with the righteous, then what will become of the guilty and the sinners? Judgment is coming. That's what he's saying. Even as he goes to the cross, who is Jesus thinking of? He's thinking of those who need God's forgiveness. He's not thinking of how, of how terrible, how arrogantly evil and wicked they are toward him. He's thinking of their need for God's forgiveness and God's rescue. That's the heart of God. Doesn't that surprise you just a little at a moment like this, that that's what's on his mind? And that's what Luke records, this conversation that Jesus has. There are two others. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals. And I emphasize it that way because there's two words for other in the Greek language. There's one that means another of the same kind, Alos, I remember that because it has two lamba or two L's that go right next to each other. Two others of the same kind, alas. The other is heteros. It's, it's others of a different kind. We, we get our word heterosexual to, for someone who is attracted to another, another of a different kind, not the same kind. So heteros means another of a different kind. And these others, these other thieves... These others who were crucified, they're introduced as others of a different kind who were criminals because Jesus is not. It's another subtle hint by, by Luke stating again Jesus' innocence in the midst of this. And yet Jesus, according to Isaiah 53, 12, is numbered with the transgressors, those who were criminals. And yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, his words of warning to the daughters of Jerusalem, those are words of intercession. He's pleading for them to see their desperate plight, to understand that judgment is hanging over, but he's going to tell them what to do with it. The next three, now there are seven words that Jesus gives from the cross. Luke gives us three of them. And the three that Luke gives us, I think, go right with him being the only, or the only one that I know of well, I mean, I can read the other Gospels. I'm not sure that this, the daughters of Jerusalem is described in the other Gospels. Maybe it is or it isn't. But Luke gives us that, and then he gives us these three short clip statements of Jesus that I think go right with that. First of all, the warning to the daughters of Jerusalem is an intercessory warning. He cares for them. He's burdened about them. It echoes what he said when he entered Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing for protection, but you were not willing. You would not. You refused. And he has that same mindset here on his way to the cross. And so the next three statements that he says, they, they explain out this intercessory mindset. So let's take them in that view. The first one, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Well, they know much about what they're doing, but they don't know the full ramifications of it. And Jesus still, as they hold the nails, as the hammer is in their hand, Jesus prays for them, Father, forgive them. And Stephen would show the way to us in Acts chapter 7 when he picks up the mind of Jesus and as they stone him, he says, Lord Jesus, do not lay this sin to their account. 
Don't hold this against them. He's echoing the heart of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Can you and I do that to those who would trouble us? To those who would oppose us? To those who would ridicule or mock or scorn us? Can we say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Along with that as well, there's a, there's a reminder for us that sometimes we think we know what we're doing, and yet we don't. I've been working on a project at the house, and anytime I work on a project at the house, I try to plan ahead. I think, I think about it for a while. I try to think it through. I try to organize all that I need, and I know there's going to be more trips to Ace Hardware or Lowe's or Home Depot or someplace like that. I know I'm going back, and I know I expect along the way, although I never want it this way, I always expect I'm going to have to undo something and redo that a different way because no, that's not right, that's not going to work. Some of you are nodding your heads, you've been there too, you know home improvement. Okay, working on your car, same thing, except you don't go to Lowe's, you go somewhere else, I hope you knew that. All right, so my point in all of that is I don't know what I do. Even when I think I know what I'm doing, there's still things that I don't know. When you deal with people, you don't know what you're doing. There's things you don't know. About your, your even best efforts at ministry still, there's much about what you want to do and what you would try to do that you don't know. All of us could, to some level, enter into that reality. And Jesus prays, he prays for us. They don't know what they do. That there, there's a reminder of humanity's desperate need for God's light for God's truth. God, aren't you glad God's given it to us in a book? He's laid, it, he's laid it out. He's written it down for us that we can know him and we can know more about ourselves out of what God has told us because we don't know even as much as we think we know. We often assume things, what's right and what's normal and what ought to be. And I ought to have a million dollars. Thank you for that. Maybe I shouldn't have a million dollars. God tells me about contentment, right? So there's a reminder there for us, certainly. But there's that initial intercession. Judgment is coming over a world that has rejected God's Savior. And yet the son cries, Father, forgive them. They don't know what to do. And then when a, when a thief replies, Jesus' words to him are today. For those who are forgiven in Jesus, the promise to them is today you will be with me in paradise. Now there's so much more there than the thief had asked for. The thief asked to be remembered in his kingdom one day in the future when that comes. And he, and he says to him, today... Today you will be with me. And there's some of Paul's theology that leaks through Luke here. The importance of being in Christ. The importance of what we share in Christ. And with him in relationship with him. That we are not only children of God, but we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. That we will reign with him in his kingdom. That God has given us a unique standing in our identification with Jesus, that leaks through, that that's how God treats rebels who respond and come to him in faith as the thief does. We'll talk more about him in a little bit. But the third statement I want us to consider in this mindset of God, of intercession, when judgment hangs over us, and that is the example of trusting faith that Jesus himself gives. I unpack that with the kids a little bit. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. What does it mean to say I believe in God? 
It's not simply a cognitive acknowledgement that I accept the premise that God exists, that God is real, that God is the sovereign of the universe. I accept that that, that, um, premise. That's not to believe in terms of biblical faith. To believe in God, to believe in Jesus as my Savior is to entrust myself to God because of Jesus. To entrust, to trust myself, my rescue in Jesus' death for me. When I say I believe in Jesus' death for me, I entrust myself to him. Father, into your hands I entrust, I commit my spirit. Jesus is demonstrating for us there what it is that faith looks like. What does it mean? And again, I think some of Paul's influence is there because Paul's message is, oh, what must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer asked, and Paul's answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What does it mean to believe? I entrust myself to you, God, because of what Jesus did for me. That's what it means to believe. And Jesus shares that with them, shows that to them. Because out of these, out of these that Jesus responds to, as they're gathered around, let's turn our attention. I said Luke focuses on the crowd. There is a crowd unnamed following. There are daughters of Jerusalem that are mourning and lamenting. There are the women who followed from Galilee and some of the others who, followed, who have followed him. But there are three groups in particular that now come into sharper focus. There are, first of all, the rulers who reject him, who ridicule him. In, uh, in verse Let's see, let's, let's find where they are, around about verse 35. As the people stood by watching, but in contrast, the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others, let himself himself save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Yes, he is. He is God's chosen one, though they reject him. They do not choose to entrust themselves to him, but he is God's chosen one. The one of whom Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, My chosen one in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights, upon whom is God's spirit. He is anointed by the spirit, anointed Messiah, the Christ. So he, they, are, they are connecting him to Isaiah 42, even as they reject him. Remember on, this, on the mountain? It's in Matthew 17. It's in Luke chapter 9, verse 35, where God speaks to those three, who, the three disciples who were with Jesus there on the mountain of transfiguration. When Peter wants to get all excited and wants to build three tabernacles, one for, one for Moses and one for Elijah and one for Jesus, and the voice from heaven comes, and God himself says, this is my son, and Luke records, my chosen one. Hear him, listen to him, and yet they have not. They have plugged their ears. They reject, they ridicule him, the the rulers, the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council of Israel. Next we come across the soldiers. The soldiers also mocked him. Offering him sour wine, the uh, cheapest wine of the poor classes, not fit for a king, not a table wine at all. 
They, they um, mock him, say, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. They're, they, as proud Romans, are not interested in any Jew saving them, but he should at least be able to save himself if he were to be the king of the Jews, right? And they, they mock not only Jesus, but those whom he has identified himself with, the nation as a whole. They trust in themselves. They're quite proud. I call these the secularists, those who entrust themselves to the power, the politics, the institutions of the day. Rome will be our protector. Rome is the ruler of the universe. Rome is who our confidence is, and so it is Rome that we will serve. Whether it all seems like it's good or right or it ought to be or not, I'll just do what I'm supposed to. I'm a cog in the wheel. I will do my part and go along with the flow because nobody's going to stand in front of that freight train called Rome. And so they're just going to go along with it all and enjoy themselves as they do, gambling for his clothing that may include that splendid robe that Herod had outfitted him with earlier. They do not know, as they mock him and serve him that vinegar sour wine, that they themselves fulfill God's word, Psalm 69, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. The third representative group, the criminal. The criminal rails and rages. Now what offense has Jesus done to him? What did Jesus do to him that he would be so mad? The only thing you can come up with is that he didn't win the lottery. That Pilate chose Barabbas instead of him. But nothing that Jesus has done has contributed at all to his condemnation to his execution to his crucifixion he rails against Jesus the innocent one instead of and and doing so he joins himself to those who persecute him too isn't that ironic and yet we see that don't we see that even among humans I, when I was a kid we raised chickens and we we had this thing called nopec and it was this slimy, red, terrible stuff that if some of the chickens started pecking on one of the chickens, once you started to get a wound on the back of the one chicken that was getting picked on, all the other chickens would peck at it and peck at it. They'd end up killing that chicken if you didn't put no peck on it. You didn't know I knew farmer stuff, did you? Well, there you go. But people are like that too. They will, they will single out somebody else. In fact, one of, the sure way, one of the things that bullied kids do is they become bullies. They decide to, it's better to be the bullier than the one who is bullied. And so they pick on others and encourage others to pick on others. They deflect it away from themselves. And they end up joining in with the same ones who have persecuted them. We see the same thing in humanity that we see going on here in history. He joins with the railings of the others. He joins with his persecutors, railing against God and against his king. And yet, in the midst of this, in the midst of those three, three groups, there's something strange that happens. And I want us to keep the judgment and God's salvation in view here. What is happening at the cross? The cross is about judgment, and the cross is about salvation. As Christians, we know that, and let's see how Luke continues to raise that. You remember when there was, there was two cosmic events that happened? Remember what they were? One of them is darkness for three hours, and the other one is the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. First of all, the darkness. 
It's dark, and it's specifically dark from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from noon for three hours. And then we come to Amos chapter 8 and verse 9. On that day, what day? On the day of the Lord, on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast. When did this happen? Passover. I will turn your feasts and all your songs into lamentation. All the psalms that they would sing, the psalms of ascent going up to Jerusalem for Passover become instead lamentations and mourning. Even You wonder why Luke keeps describing the people lamenting and mourning and beating their breasts? Because the mood in all of Jerusalem has changed from celebration of Passover to mourning and lament. It's as if Isaiah 8, 9, the day of the Lord was fulfilled, but, but, but it's not. The day of the Lord is still coming, but God orchestrates the events of that day such that nobody can miss that the wrath of God's judgment, the wrath, day of the Lord type wrath, is falling upon Jesus. He bears first for us will what God will ultimately pour out on rebellious humanities that refuses to receive God's salvation. But he bears it first. He bears the very worst of God's wrath first. We see this imagery of the day of the Lord because that is what's happening first to Jesus. And so then the, outer, the, the temple curtain and in, in inner curtain, outer curtain, we're not sure, but certainly there is the understanding out of that, that from top to bottom, God does this. God, God um, initiates this, not man. Priest didn't grab hold of that temple, that curtain at the bottom and pull it open. No, God opens the, the curtain from top to bottom, and the way into the presence of God within his temple is opened. Access to God is made possible through the death of his son for us. Now, we had three groups of people gathered around watching all this, observing all this. We have this cosmic shape up of the wrath of God falling and the way to God opened. How will people respond? Will anybody respond? With all of those who are gathered there mocking and rejecting, will anybody respond? And the first up is the thief. The other, there's our other word again, the other thief, not the one who was railing, and ranting, but the other thief turns to Jesus and he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believes Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. He will yet rule. He, is he going to be raised from the dead after his death? He will yet rule in his kingdom. And this thief begs him, could he somehow possibly, is, is there a way for him to be a part of it? And Jesus says, today you will be with me. You will be with me in paradise. And then there's, there were the soldiers who mocked. So there are the thieves who railed, and look, one responds. There are the soldiers who are mocking, right? And then there's a soldier. In fact, there's the centurion. There's the officer in charge of the execution detail. And the soldier, it says, does two things. He praises God, and he says, Surely this man was a righteous one. Now, I know ESV translated innocent, 
But that's not the normal translation for the Greek word. The normal translation for that Greek word is righteous. It just seemed a little out of place there. So it's an interpretive decision. They go with innocent because that's clearly a theme in these two chapters. Jesus, Jesus is the innocent one. But here I think the, the centurion voices the, the word righteous. He is a righteous one for a particular reason. There's an echo there of Isaiah 53 again, which Luke keeps going back to. Luke, Isaiah 53 and verse 11 says, By his knowledge, by doing what God has told him to do, his knowledge of God's will, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. So the righteous one makes many righteous. There's what Paul will unpack in the book of Romans as his theology of justification, that we are made right in right standing with God. We are made righteous before God because our sin has been put upon Jesus instead. The righteous one makes many righteous. That's the confession of the centurion. Obviously, he's a man who has he served among the Jews. Remember, there was a centurion up in Capernaum that actually built the town synagogue. So there are some soldiers along the way. Does he maybe get drafted for this detail, another little political twist, because he's someone who's understanding of the Jews and their background and their God and maybe some of his promises? We don't know. All we know is the soldiers mocked, and yet there's this one. There's this one. And then, who was the last group, or the first group, actually? Remember, we moved from council, the rulers, to the soldiers mocking, to the thief raging, and then we have the thief believing. We have a soldier believing. So who would we expect next? A council member. And then there was Joseph, a member of the council. Although he was not agreeing with them, but he was shouted down. But he's a good man. He's a just a righteous man. He's a man of faith. A man who is looking for the kingdom of God. The same kind of thing that's said of Simeon at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Another one of those bookends that Luke puts in from the beginning to the end. Like Simeon, Joseph is a man who is looking for God's future rather than the present. In fact, he is willing to face disfavor from the temperamental pilot. He's willing to face the wrath of the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin council that would expel people because they believed in Jesus. But he, Joseph, would face that wrath in order to honor Jesus. He does so even at, even at the expense of defiling a tomb that was intended for him. Well, because Jesus took the death that was intended for us. This terrible judgment, the wrath of God, a day of the Lord like wrath of God, judgment of sin, for humanity is all too worthy. And yet there are these proud religious who celebrate their victory of politics over truth. There are these secularists like the soldiers, all too happy to carry out evil orders. There are the godless human rebels who rage against Jesus who suffers for them. Yet among those three groups... Among those same three groups, there are those who, are, who we see are saved, declaring faith in Jesus. You see, it's from the most unexpected. Those who reject it, it's out of those same circles, there are some 
who in faith appeal to God for his rescue and his forgiveness. Now, there's two things we can do with that. As we think about a thief who came to believe Jesus' death could redeem him, As we think about a centurion who points to God being praised because the righteous one makes many righteous. As we think of Joseph who rejects the condemnation of the council and looks instead to God's kingdom. As we think of these, we could probably see ourselves at one point in time as similar. Maybe I was the proud, arrogant, religious one. Maybe I was trusting in the world around me rather than looking to God at all. Maybe I was a a godless human rebel asserting my own will over anyone else with whatever I could get away with until I couldn't get away with it anymore. But we could perhaps see ourselves within any of those groups. But do you see yourself in the individuals, in the thief who recognizes his need for a savior, in the, in the centurion who recognizes a righteousness from God that's not according to works, in, the, in Joseph who looks to God's kingdom and will honor Jesus even though it will cost him in the eyes of others. Have you seen yourself there? Were you there in one of those three who expressed faith in this rejected Jesus as God's salvation for me? But what about people around you? If you have named the name of Jesus, if that's where your confidence is, if that's where your trust is, then certainly, certainly you're going to experience opposition at times. You're going to, and I think we're in an age where it's going to increase, where you will experience mocking and ridicule or rejection, and you'll be tempted to isolate yourself, and you'll be tempted to pray, oh God, would you destroy them? Oh God, would you answer them? Oh God, would you? You'll be praying in precatory psalms. You know, those psalms that call down judgment of God upon other people. And it's right to feel that way in some sense. That's justice calling out against injustice. Yet, do you have the heart of God's mercy to say, Father, would you forgive them? They don't know what they do. Do you really expect that even among some of these mockers and scorners who you read about and look down upon, that some of them could believe in Jesus just like you and I have? And they too could be saved because they were even on that worst of all days. Why not now? Why not here? Why not among people who you know? Maybe the one who troubles you the most. Maybe the reason they trouble you the most is because it's eaten away at them at the inside. And so we will continue, even in the midst of being troubled, like Peter says, to give an answer for the hope that is within us. We will, like Jesus, like Stephen, pray for those who persecute us, as Paul says. Wouldn't it be something if, 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 as I suspect, Luke's letter here, Luke's gospel, is influenced a good bit by Paul's theology over the years as he's traveled with him? Wouldn't it be wonderful if our outlook, if our, the way we look at history, the way we look at life around us, if our outlook was changed, shifted, we saw things differently, we we understood better what we formerly did not know what we were doing? What if we saw things differently because of the truth of God's word? And a little more, day by day, 
What if we saw the people around us differently? Because we saw them through the lens of the gospel like Jesus as he died for them. Would you pray with me? Father, we all know someone who seems very much opposed to Jesus. And one wonders why so opposed if they just don't believe there's anything there. Lord, perhaps the most outspoken opposition is because your spirit has pricked their hearts and they're reacting against that. Father, perhaps there's someone even here today that would see themselves in one of those groups that today might be the day they would join in one of those confessions. Indeed, follow Jesus' example. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Lord, I entrust myself to you for your forgiveness, for your rescue, to be brought again into right relationship with God. And Father, would you give us tender hearts for the people around us. Indeed, Lord, send us into your world in peace. Help us, Father, to see ourselves among those who were there. And so, Lord, to have a merciful, gracious, prayerful heart for those we know who would also be there around the cross rejecting the Son because it's in Jesus, our forgiveness, It's in his name that we pray. Amen.